0: Welcome to episode 63 of the Hilo, the weekly news and pop culture podcast brought to you by journalist Dolly Alton
1: and Pandora Sykes. I walked into Pandora's house today and she said it was a house of mourning. Uh, Because obviously, not only your husband, Dolly, I think the whole house, the whole Sykes clan, including me, are very sad. Like, I've just put myself in the Sykes clan there. Um, Are very sad because obviously England lost against Croatia last night. If you listen
0: carefully, I think you can hear the baby still crying about it. I did a bit of a vault fast with the old football competition, as Dolly likes to call it. I watched the last 30 minutes last night and I felt very tense. Mm. And I did think, if I feel tense... How is everyone else feeling who's been following the football competition from the beginning?
1: All well, who follow football competitions all year round. Since
0: the since the year dot. Yeah. And then I got stuck into everyone's Instagram profiles. Lol to Deli Boo Boohoo Man
1: collaboration. Fair play, mate. When the match started, I was on a train back from Somerset and then um, I was meant to haul ass to the gym straight afterwards and I managed to. Did a quick run while I was watching the first half and I just found it too stressful. I had to get off the treadmill And then I thought, the crowds, it was like a ghost town in Camden. There was, the streets were empty and there were people pouring out of the pubs. So I thought, oh, I think maybe I'll just like go to the pub at the end of my road and just watch it. And what a historical that moment. segue from the gym to the pub, thus undoing the... <laughs> so I walked to the pub looking mad with my like weekend bag, red in the face with my gym kit on. And then I just, and then I lost my nerve because it was just, it was so packed and I suddenly felt like people would know I've never done this before. So I like nervously, like a little church mouse, just stood outside the pub and just looked through the window with my beady little eyes. And then there was this other... <laughs> (laughs) Like introverted woman, like quite bookish woman with a book bag and like a and a bag of pastries, who joined me and she just like stood next to me and then another. Please tell me
0: she gave you a pastry. She offered me one. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. And then another
1: sort of nervous old man couldn't quite bring himself to go into the pub, so he came and stood by the window as well. So it's all quite Dickensian, and we all just like had our little faces. (laughs) <laughs> peeking through but That's you no, know, it, was, it was sad and actually I was quite nervous because everyone kept tweeting saying that the behaviour of the team this year and the fans have been exemplary and I felt a really like like insane energy as I walked back to my flat of these men really ranting and shouting outside the pub so I was nervous that it would be a kind of night of chaos but I looked at the headlines this morning and apparently nothing disastrous happened I'm also quite in love with Gareth Southgate I am um, he's in love with
0: a new public figure that's been around for a really long time but she has just discovered
1: he's so cute her Didn't new he discovery is gareth southgate he's got a nice little bottom as mns said Can i just say cj just nodded as i said that <laughs> he does have a nice bottom doesn't he
0: as mns said not all heroes wear capes Now, that is in reference to the fact that Gareth Southgate's tie and waistcoat combo from M&S have sold out. And the retailer actually shared a spoof review by Gareth on their site. The anonymous five-star review was posted by a man who needed a waistcoat for a business trip to Russia, who said he was so impressed he would bring it home again. It's since gone viral on social media, and if you want the £65 waistcoat from M&S, you will now have to head to eBay, where you can expect to pay double. Despite the disappointing results, many people nevertheless enjoyed a fortifying tuning, including, I am guessing, the team of people behind an Instagram message sent to me at 33 minutes past midnight this morning. Dear Diddley, st- <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a whole preamble at the beginning about how that should be my rapper name. <laughs> Thank you for putting so much free content out there. You're known to the common gal as Saint Snowflake. I understand through liberal stalking and naturally your podcast, you are a very busy lady. The issue I've got here, Pandedly, is your complete <laughs> lack of battery at all times of the day when posting screenshots. My battery anxiety cannot cope anymore, which is odd because you're a stranger. As a house, we would like to honour you with a plethora of portable chargers. Please think of this as an homage to your gift of a podcast to a generation of young people. But let's not
1: get weird about it. Let us know if you have a P.O. box. I love her. I think she should replace me on this podcast. She Sounds like she's got much more natural charisma. (laughs) Definitely drunk. Please think of
0: this as an homage to your gift of a podcast to a generation of young people. Saint Snowflake is
1: very funny. (laughs) Anyway, so I think everyone had a good time in the end. They did, pan This week has been the week of many cabinet changes. Dominic Raab has replaced David Davis' Brexit secretary. Davis resigned late on Sunday night, saying he could no longer support the government's Brexit policy announced at Chequers last week. I know this is um, not going to be very good for my bawdy image of uh, this week's podcast, but as a side note, I felt very conflicted about um, finding the awful Brexiteer Dominic Raab quite annoyingly fit. (laughs) You said you think he was a bit annoyingly fit as well, poundedly. I do not think he's annoyingly fit. You did a little bit, you said. (laughs) But then a friend made the observation that he looks a bit like a man who lives in a Clapham new build, who goes to the Sainsbury's in Clapham Junction station wearing his gym kit and some flip flops, just bunging in broccoli and steak into his basket. So um, that quelled that lusty feeling.
0: And who said women can't helm a culture podcast?
1: So baldy this week. In other reshuffle news, lock up your loins. (laughs) In other reshuffle news, Bojo has been hoofed out as foreign secretary and replaced by Jeremy Hunt, the controversial health secretary, and Hunt has been replaced by Matt Hancock.
0: You just have to hope that Matt Hancock will do a better job of the NHS crisis than Jeremy Hunt, who just made this catalogue of errors. On a positive note, a £20 billion NHS birthday funding package was announced just before Jeremy Hunt departed office. But on the other, as the Labour shadow health secretary, Jonathan Ashworth, tweeted, Jeremy Hunt has left behind a toxic legacy, which includes £9 billion worth of NHS privatisation, 4 million people on waiting lists and 100,000 staff vacancies and a and in a humanitarian crisis. From sad news to happy, your personal hero, Dolly Cardigan B, has had a baby with her rapper boyfriend offset.
1: I know, and I can't believe I know this, but the baby's name is Culture with a K.
0: <laughs> God, that's incredible. And the hearts <laughs> of a million teenagers all over the globe literally combusted when Justin Bieber revealed that he was engaged to model Haley Baldwin. Came out of nowhere for his fans who hoped that Jelena, that's him and Selena Gomez, would end up together. Also this week, London Pride saw 30,000 people take to the London streets. The revelry was disrupted by an anti-trans protest where
1: eight women lay down in the street. Dolly, what have you been enjoying this week? You might be a little bit surprised to hear. I read an absolutely brilliant column by Giles Corrin and I agreed with every word of it. It was about how the like button on social media and more worryingly, the obsessive need to like and be liked in a very public manner is rotting the integrity of society. He talks about how our dopamine addiction to virtual validation means that we're collectively saying or posting or writing things to get a hit of that rather than engage with our thoughts or express ourselves or have authentic debate or really think a subject through.
0: I would say that's an argument that's been doing the rounds for quite a while. I've written something quite similar to that effect. I'm, I'm interested to hear more of why you thought that, but that's not an original. The thought. way
1: the way that he phrased it, I found really original because what he was saying is that it wasn't just about um, affiliation and validation; it's about actually disconnecting from our heads because. What we're doing now, instead of expressing ourselves, we're doing a kind of studied impression of what we think the nicest person mm. in the world might think or say, mm-hmm. rather than connecting to what we feel deep in our bodies or deep in our brains. So it's become very disingenuous. Yeah, it's just, it's just like, it's the opposite of intellectualism and it's the opposite of creativity. And it's certainly something that I'm guilty of, where the thought process is, what would a person who I would like to be like think of this rather than let's really take a moment to think about what I think of this and that is quite a new way of looking at it I think here's a particularly brilliant quote from the piece Liking achieves nothing, brings no one back from the dead, creates no new hospital beds, saves no political unions, changes nothing at the White House. All it does is drive traffic through sites built to monetize the like addiction and makes a handful of wonks in white trainers even richer than they were. In that regard, the internet generation has been sold a massive pup, probably on eBay. I also abhor the way it has spread offline to affect columnists and commentators. I hate the way they increasingly seem to have sat down at their computer and thought, now what would the nicest person in the world think about this? It makes them popular, swells their social figures, but it isn't the route to truth. The like of the current century serves the function of prayer in centuries gone by. It is a lazy nod of acquiescence to the prevailing wind. But prayer didn't stop wars or famine or holocaust or death, and nor will this."
0: that's such a like people are starving in the sudan line of argument is of course liking something isn't creating new hospital beds neither is neither is us recommending a good book or going to a good movie i think escalating
1: it to that is is just a really unhelpful comparison. But, but he's not just saying about the like button, he's saying about the culture that's coming offline. It's not people don't think that by clicking a button they can change the world. But what he's saying is like disconnecting from how we think because of fear of not being validated. That's not going to change the world because we're skirting around the truth. And I do think that's a really profound. I think you put it better than him. Thanks babe. I just thought it was a really interesting piece and I thought it was very well written and very impassioned. Um, and predictably as I posted my admiration for the piece uh, I got some hysterical emails and tweets from people telling me that Giles Corrin is awful and evil and I they shouldn't... weren't from me and they they work from Pandora, uh, telling me that he's awful and I shouldn't be endorsing his work, which I think just proved the very cautionary tale of the whole piece. There was such a delicious irony in the whole thing. He's
0: controversial, sure, but he's not fucking Stalin. He just writes too much about wanking.
1: I know we say this a lot on this show, but I think we've just got to stop thinking of people as goodies and baddies, and we all have to decide which camp they're in. It's so infantilised. Giles Corrin has written pieces that I've absolutely hated in the recent past and expressed himself in the way that I have found offensive. This does not mean that he isn't capable of really interesting mm. thoughts. We are all so much more than our worst day or our worst piece. That should be your bio on social media. I'm so <laughs> much more than my worst piece. <laughs> what is my worst piece? Oh, I tried to think. I think it's um, since I listened to that tour interview that I recommended on last week's episode with Zadie Smith where she's talking about the importance of thinking things through rather than showing off the right Mm. opinions like a designer handbag. It's had such a deep impact on me and I keep thinking about it and I really want to be in my brain thinking about subjects and looking at different sides rather than desperately trying to hit on the right ones so everyone likes me. And I would be way more interested in hearing why you disagree with the sentiments in his argument rather than why you think he's a baddie and therefore all other thoughts of his are rendered completely void. Rant over. I also listened to Guys We Fucked last week, as I do most weeks, Friday morning, it's my Friday morning ritual, and I nearly fell off my treadmill when they introduced the guest, who was Amanda Knox. Mm. I've listened to quite a few interviews with Amanda Knox, and I heard her say loads of things in this interview that I've never heard her say before. The reason I found it so interesting is, first of all, they're very open, very unguarded interviewers, which I think works especially well for a subject who is normally treated with such an agenda, such an established Mm. gender from from journalists. But also because of the nature of the podcast being anti-slut shaming and more generally anti-shame. She talks in great detail about how her sexuality was used against her in the case, how the police and the media created a sexual identity for her, the binary of female sexuality being either the Madonna or the Whore, and nothing complicated or nuanced in between. She talks about how the police lied to her and told her she was HIV positive of part, as part of the interrogation to her and see her reaction she talks about how fear and fantasy are so closely interlinked in public consciousness when it comes to sexuality and she's very open she also talks about what happens to a person's sexuality when they're in prison and what happens to that development and she she talks about how she learned to masturbate while she was in pr- prison that's where she taught herself to masturbate because she was only in her early 20s when she was incarcerated I have to say, I think it is an uncomfortable listen in parts, um, mainly because I just kept thinking of Meredith Kirch's family. I'm really baffled by
0: Amanda Knox's agenda. A young woman was murdered and you're prattling on about wanking in prison. I don't get it. I don't get her. I think what she's saying are all very valid things about slut-shaming and about sexuality and from anyone else's mouth, I'd be really interested to hear them. But what she seems to be failing to connect every time she gives one of these interviews, and you should really watch the Scarlet Letter reports mm. that I, you know, that I recently yes. talked about. What really comes across um, in that and in any kind of reporting of the murder trial, it's that she was doing a cartwheel the day after she'd found out that her friend had been murdered and that she was in prison awaiting, you know, charges. That when you watch on the Scarlet Letter reports. She goes on and on about how in love she was with Raphael and how difficult it was for them. And she doesn't once mention her friend or her friend's family who got murdered. It's not that that makes people like me really question Amanda Knox. I think it's how insanely narcissistic and unempathetic she has been. And I find it very weird that she is going on a podcast and talking about learning to masturbate in prison. I just think it's fucking inappropriate. But on the other side...
1: I know what you mean and it feels insensitive and inappropriate but she's it's been, been exonerated so so it, she's innocent in the eyes of the law so she—it's not
0: about her innocence for me it's about like
1: her her tact and her diplomacy but i think she feels if she's innocent she doesn't owe people tact and diplomacy because she had nothing to do with the murder so she's allowed to talk about whatever she, wants. she has this platform because of the murder but so we, they
0: are inextricably linked yeah historically
1: I, I don't know. I I think I felt much less sympathetic towards her before I listened to this interview. And I don't know what it is about this interview. I think I understood her... Better and I
0: think I'll give it a listen because I am I am speaking from a place of having not seen this interview that you described as kind of you know seeing her in new light. It was just I I had to stop watching the Scarlet Letter because I her agenda was really uncomfortable to me and I found it really distasteful and I don't I don't normally come down on people like that so much. I'm all for believing you know you know innocent. She's been mm. proven innocent. I think women are multifaceted. I don't think you should be slut-shamed. All of those things. But there is something about Amanda Knox I find really troubling having watched a lot of footage and interviews recently. i, I, I think with she's, I'll listen to this for sure. I short. think she's
1: guilty of being a performer and I think she's guilty of being a narcissist, but that's a lot of 20-year-old girls. It certainly yeah. was me. You yeah. know, I, I, I dread to think how I would have behaved in that situation at that age. I, I just... I don't know. I think we have to find a way of, of of keeping the flaws of her personality and the case separate but I don't think I have to want to
0: listen to any more of what she has to say and that's no, and no, that and, and that's I'm gonna to listen to this interview but if I still feel the same way then I think that's got to be it for me and Amanda Knox I feel like I've watched a lot of what she puts out there and it leaves me feeling really depressed mm. a lot of the time mm. um, and as you say you've, you just keep on thinking of Meredith Kirchech's family. Regardless of the fact that she's been proven innocent, but that is a really good
1: recommendation. Mm, it's a it's a good interview, and in lighter news. I'm so happy that we're still getting emails from listeners who are just loving Dear Joan and Jericho." Oh, my think God. we've ever had as much feedback on something. It's
0: just the best thing ever. I've it's been talking so about good. it everywhere I
1: go. Yeah, I've had my friend uh, Alex over from New York the last few days, and we went away and we just lay in bed listening to it, and it just made her so happy. And I think as an expat as well, it will be such a nice taste of home for her while she's away, because it's such... Julia Davis is such a uniquely kind of British sense of humour stimulating me with his big toe (laughs) we listen to that one again obviously
0: what have you been up to Panda? I read lots of brilliant articles this week I will waltz through them fairly quickly Terry White on poverty for Grazia. It was last week's issue. It was hooked off something we could have quite feasibly natted about on the high-low. Actually, the YouTuber Alfie has misguided "How to Live Off One Pound a Day" video, where he bemoaned the lack of bottled water in his budget. Did you read about that? It was big. He had to, no, it's big. No, that's so crazy. He had to delete it off YouTube, and there was St Paul's leaked austerity lunch—a baked potato. Oh, that was
1: mortifying.
0: It's what food writer Jack Monroe calls poverty tourism. She also called it poor face. Though, understandably, the conflation with blackface was considered offensive by some terry's piece warns of the dangers of dealing with the shame that people who grow up in poverty feel tarnished by and that we have to find a way of helping without seeming or coming across or being voyeuristic yes terry's piece discusses the fact that 30 percent of british children live below the poverty line more than ever before food bank use has soared by 13 percent in the last year and yet as terry writes society has rarely seemed so ill-equipped so unwilling to deal with the sight and the specter of poverty she says the scars never leave you as someone who's grown up in poverty you know economically she is now resolutely middle class but the humiliation and sadness of living outside society is something she says that really stays with you I adore Terry's writing. It's really powerful and she brings light to a subject which is rarely written about because most magazine journalists like us did not grow up in care. Or poverty, which says a lot about opportunities and who gets those opportunities in themselves. The piece ends, here's the truth. The kids going to school without toothpaste to brush their teeth, they're just like you. The women queuing at the food bank, they're just like you. In a time of austerity, economic insecurity and zero hour contracts, it could truthfully be any of us and that is what society is meant to be us looking unflinchingly with clear eyes together that is how you undo shame one stitch at a time
1: she's a phenomenal writer and she
0: kept it find it for you later i kept it for you Mm because i knew you'd really enjoy it i'm really glad we have her writing these pieces Mm, i could read her write about the same subject many many times because she clearly has so many stories to tell and as i said it's not a point of view that we see being told that much in women's magazines, gossip yes. magazines. Yes. Conversely, and yes, I am aware of the irony of these recommendations sitting side by side, I was riveted by a New York Times piece from April on being rich, written by the novelist Jessica Knoll. I became aware of this piece from the Call Your Girlfriend podcast and someone messaged me when I shared it on my Instagram stories, you may be personally light years away from being rich, but it's still a really important piece to read um, about women who are determined to change the status quo. In the piece, Jessica writes, Rich is still a man's word. Typecasting aspirations of wealth has not helped diversify the three comma club. According to Forbes' annual tally, less than 12% of the world's billionaires are women, and almost three-quarters of that dismal statistics inherited their fortunes. A T-Row price survey shows that in 2017 parents of only boys still save more and pay more for their son's education than parents who have only girls. She talks about why being rich is not something that women, particularly women of colour, are seen to be allowed to achieve. It's a really interesting piece. And I think it's been shared a lot since she wrote it in April because it's um it's not something that's really been written about. Yeah. She's absolutely right. Rich is still um, a man's word. Yeah. And that ambition um, is not something that's written about very much. I mean, again, I think it comes back to shame, doesn't it? Mm. I was also fascinated by a piece in The Guardian on noise pollution by Richard Godwin called Sonic doom which was highlighted to me by the week's podcast the week unwrapped i've talked about it before but now i'm more familiar with the podcast i absolutely love it dolly so would you they take 3 underreported stories from the week and dissect them forensically and with so much thought and detail and background like Mm. you know they are really smart on the topics they talk about who presents it ollie man it's got a few podcasts ollie man so richard golden wrote this piece um Hooked off the fact that the World Health Organization calculated that at least 1 million life years are lost every year in Western Europe countries because of environmental noise. How? It's thought that noise triggers the release of the stress hormone cortisol, which damages your blood vessels over time, leading to heart attacks and coronary heart disease. Humans, Godwin writes, are hardwired to find noise stressful. The European Environment Agency blames 10,000 premature deaths 43,000 hospital admissions and 900,000 cases of hypertension a year in Europe on noise. The most pervasive source is road traffic noise. 125 million Europeans experience levels greater than 55 decibels, which is thought to be harmful to health day, evening and night.
1: Presumably it's a uh, socio-economic
0: Well, you'd have thought so, right? People with less money are more likely to live under flight paths, by motorways and at train stations above busy restaurants. But actually, London's wealthiest borough, Kensington and Chelsea, received the most noise complaints of any borough in London. It had 13,790 complaints in 2016, the equivalent of more than 87 for every 1,000 inhabitants. It could be because when you're that rich, you don't want to think of anything in life as not being exactly to your taste. But also, it's because basement extensions and street music were the main issues. So there you go. Money doesn't save your logos. Mm. On the small screen, I've been enjoying the Netflix series Glow, which oh, stars Mark Maron. Yes, about female wrestling. Have you ever seen it? No. Apparently, it's great. Glow stands for Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling. I'd been meaning to watch it for some time. It's really brilliant. It somehow manages to be both utterly ludicrous and completely authentic. It's funny and moving and smart. Alison Brie is brilliant in it I don't get much time to watch Netflix at the moment but I watched it all the way to Southampton where I was working last week and all the way back and I got a really good session in and Mark Marin is very very good I think you'll really like it lastly a book of poetry landed on my desk this week by Charlie Cox for whom I was lucky enough to give a quote for the back which I'd completely forgotten about until I saw my name on the back Charlie is, in the words of Sunday Time Style, social media's answer to Carol Ann Duffy. And she writes brilliantly about all the anxieties and tensions and excitements and discoveries of being a young woman and one who has struggled with mental health issues. In fact, she was very recently named an ambassador for MQ Mental Health. I just want to read one poem for you called I Wish I'd Not Spent So Long Crying in Bed. I fear too much to quantify the rest, to feel the beat with flat palms on my chest. I fear too much... To think back to when I wanted less, I feared too much to see the mess of how much time I wasted when I had plenty left. And they're just really nice little vignettes of... That's an ode to anxiety. It's an ode to anxiety. And lastly, one that I just quickly have to uh, slip in because I have always been so rude about Goop, all of their jade eggs. I've always bloody loved Goop. And vaginal, holistic wallpaper.
1: I love Goop. And I really see myself hurtling towards... A Goop Goop, life. uh, Being a Goop Goop woman, being Gwyneth. (sighs) I can see it happening.
0: I deep dove into the Goop podcast. And whilst Gwyneth does talk, very quietly and gently and warmly, and it freaks me out, it's a really good podcast. And there's some really interesting women on it. Yeah. So that's my last reluctant... Oh, listen to that. That's recommendation to is the good one. I recommend the interview with the actor Olivia Wilde, who played that really sexy woman with the pink hair in The O.C. She's so hot. She's like half woman, half cat. She talks about being a multi-hyphenate and, um, and politics and being a mother, there's a lot, you'll listen to it and you'll go I know why Pandora like this, about mm. being a working mum and about the guilt you feel as a woman That's in, that's. she said she's trying to work out if that guilt has like a purpose right. if it's innate and biological or if actually we need to like stamp out and not talk about it because men aren't like this Like, yes. is that something we need to embrace and navigate or is it something that we need to exercise and she says she's still very much wrangling with that and that's actually something I think that I personally
1: think about quite a lot, mm. so that's a really good episode but there's lots of other very good episodes as well and in the mailbag this week a rather brilliant letter from the journalist and friend of the Hilo, Sophie Wilkinson, emailing us in response to our deep dive into Nanette by Hannah Gadsby. I was wondering something, writes Sophie. Gadsby refers to herself as a lesbian or a little bit lesbian, but you preferred to call her queer or a gay woman. You might not notice any difference between the three and very many lesbians call themselves gay women. But to me, it's growing to mean a lot. I'm finding myself asking, why is it that gay is the umbrella term for both lesbian and gay people, but lesbian isn't? Is it that we defer to the default male so often that even in the woke process of naming queer people a better umbrella term, it's broadly agreed, we do the same? Is it because lesbian is seen as a dirty word, a subcategory of porn? Is it because lesbians are so much less visible than gay men? I understand there's a grammar issue. Lesbian is a noun and an adjective, but gay is only comfortably an adjective. But that's because we don't call gay people gays, as it's reminiscent of the 80s tabloid speak, when gay men were castigated and further stigmatized during the AIDS crisis. If we're extending that sensitivity to gay men though, can we also do the same for lesbian women or lesbians? As just mentioned, lesbians have experienced different struggles to gay men. No, we haven't historically been criminalized in the same way. We haven't seen our partners ravaged by AIDS. But we've been women who still aren't given the same freedoms as men, even in the UK. We're more likely than our gay brothers to be poor, to have children we must provide for, and to feel like our sex. Both the act of it and what's between our legs doesn't quite count. So I'm doing my best to encourage the use of lesbian, to reclaim it for the fabulous, precise, and empowering word it is. I don't want to police language. I just want to make sure that, as it evolves and changes, us butchy brenders don't get left behind. Butchy brenders. <laughs> It's a really, really, important, yeah, thing to uh, to bring up, and something because of Pandora and I and our experiences. You know, you bypass and you, you don't. like yeah, two straight things. women. And, yeah, and this kind of sensitivity with language is really important.
0: It's it's written, yeah, it's written really thoughtfully, and um, it's a really interesting point of view. And thank you for sharing it with us. support for the Hilo comes from our effervescent pals at Moet and Shandon. And I have some effervescent facts for you today. There are many wine regions in France, but there's only a small region just outside Paris where grapes for champagne are grown. That's why it's so exclusive. It can't be called champagne if it's not from champagne. Moet and Shandon have the largest vineyards, 1,180 hectares. It's no wonder Napoleon would stop in for a drink on his way to battle. Moet Imperial is named Imperial, in fact, after Napoleon himself as he was best buds with the Mowat family.
1: Mowat has been supplying their champagne to French royalty long before that too. Claude Mowat has such an eye for knowing who were the 18th century influences. Madame Pompadour had Voltaire at her salons, and Mowat was always her drink of choice. They were doing it centuries before Instagram, and it's their anniversary this year. Happy 275th birthday, Mowat. There's a lot of candles and a lot more empty champagne bottles in your humongous cellar. Just imagine if Madame Pompadour was on Instagram.
0: Thanks very much to Merritt
1: and Shandon. It's now time for the Top Line, read by Pandora.
0: Kylie Jenner is on track to become a billionaire. Business magazine Forbes have reported that the 20-year-old reality star and beauty entrepreneur is worth $900 million. Kim Kardashian, meanwhile, is scraping by on 350 mil. A range of wine inspired by the harrowing The Handmaid's Tale have been cancelled following criticism online. Online wine marketplace Lot 18 partnered with MGM to offer three types of wine based on female characters on the show. The wines were dedicated to three strong women in the show, Offred, Offglen and Serena Joy. Offred's name was attached to a Pinot Noir, so beguiling it seems almost forbidden to taste. A little-known SDI could become the world's next superbug. Mycoplasma genitalium, Mg, often has no symptoms but can cause pelvic inflammatory disease which can leave some women infertile. First identified in the UK in the 1980s, the British Association of Sexual Health and HIV is launching new advice and advises as ever to use condoms with a sexual partner that is not long term. A clay tablet discovered during an archeological dig may be the oldest written record of Homer's epic tale, The Odyssey, ever found in Greece. Found near the ruined temple of Zeus in the ancient city of Olympia, the tablet is dated to Roman times. It is engraved with 13 verses from the poem, recounting the adventures of the hero Odysseus after the fall of Troy. The exact date of the tablet still needs to be confirmed, but its discovery was a great archeological, epigraphic, literary and historical exhibit, the Greek culture ministry said in a statement. The 12 Thai schoolboys have been successfully rescued from the cave. After 17 days, all boys successfully dived to freedom through the flooded passage of the Tam Luang cave. Sadly, during the international rescue mission, 38-year-old volunteer diver Saman Gunan died after running out of oxygen. A medical student has killed himself after his university friends shared WhatsApp messages he sent about a relationship on social media. 22-year-old Edward Senior was suspended and he feared that his medical career was over. After returning home to Monmouthshire in February, he was found dead in the woods. Three travel vloggers have died in a freak accident in Canada. Riker Gamble, Alexei Liak and Megan Scraper, known for their High On Life YouTube travel channel, died after they slipped over the top of the Shannon Falls waterfall over a 100 feet into the pool below. Theresa May faces a Brexit rebellion after furious Eurosceptics, including the hardline Tory minister Jacob Rees-Mogg, claim Number 10 has broken their trust. Not only could May lose her Tory majority, but one of the amendments to her proposed customs arrangements is backed by the DUP, in a hint the Unionist Party could be ready to drop its support for the Prime Minister. Facebook faces a record half a million pound fine for failing to protect users from their data being obtained by Cambridge Analytica. It is the maximum fine allowed under the 1998 Data Protection Act and would mark the first in a series of penalties against political parties, data companies and social media as a result of the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Killing rats could save the coral reef. Bird droppings are a natural coral fertilizer, but rats are eating the birds. Scientists say that the delicate marine habitat could be saved by exterminating the vermin on all of the tropical islands in the Indian Ocean. And that was The Top Line. If you are listening to the Hilo on the day of release, hello you Kinos, then today is a big day. Trump's baby balloon is flying over London. What's Trump's baby balloon, you might ask? Where have you been, we say in retort. The balloon, a protest blimp, if you will, is the creation of graphic designer Matt Bonner. It is bright orange, wearing a nappy secured by a safety pin, with trademark malevolent tiny hands, and holding a smartphone. The six foot high pugnacious balloon is due to take off from Parliament Square Garden today at 9.30am to coincide with Trump's
1: presidential visit to the UK. The balloon initially started as a joke before £30,000 at the time of the record, the exact figure is stated at £30,217, was raised via crowdfunder and Sadiq Khan gave permission for the balloon to fly over London as a peaceful protest. Initially, the balloon struggled to secure the Mayor of London's authorisation as City Hall maintained that inflatables are art, not a legitimate form of political protest. But Sadiq caved last week, possibly due to the online petition which was signed by over 10,000 people. Probably helps, let's be honest, that he famously can't stand Trump.
0: Not everyone thinks the balloon is the best idea ever. Dolly and I, as you can guess, are in the best idea ever camp. (laughs) Quite a lot of people think it's a waste of £18,000. There are lots of reported figures out there of exactly how much the balloon cost to make. It isn't the entire crowdfunder pot. They say that the balloon is childish and pointless. Nigel Farage naturally called it the biggest insult to a sitting US president ever, which is just hyperbolic crap. JFK? Surely being assassinated is the biggest insult to a sitting president. I actually found Sadiq Khan debating the satirical blimp with Susanna Reid and Piers Morgan, Very interesting on Good Morning Britain. Sadiq said that politicians have long been satired and that this is no different. In response, and this is something I can understand actually, Piers Morgan said, well, why are you putting so much support behind a balloon of Trump and not world leaders who recently visited Britain and are behaving much worse than him? Like the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, President Erdogan, who's locked up hundreds of journalists in Turkey. He's homophobic, he's misogynistic. Sadiq said, well, as a shadow justice secretary, there were lots of times that I advocated not doing deals with certain countries at certain times but as the mayor of London this is a country we're talking about that we have a special relationship with you know this is the US this is something
1: slightly different I really want the word special relationship to just be put out of common parlance I can't bear them um, I do think he, I think that's true about satire if you look at something like spitting image I think it's a good place for people to channel their anger and outrage Um, in something that's funny and unifying. I think that's powerful in its own way and as Sadiq Khan says, it's peaceful. That said,
0: there's one important point to be made and that is that Trump's visit may be controversial. Many have questioned why Theresa May is hosting him, but it is increasingly necessary as we prepare for Brexit. The UK desperately needs a good trade deal with the US. Will this balloon piss trump off so much that it will affect the deal they strike that may sound ridiculous but this is a man with such a flimsy ego such a sensitive narcissism so quick to respond to the kind of very surface personal stuff that i think that could be a very real fear and not to get all david beckham's right foot david beckham's left foot about anglo-american special relationships but this is a lukewarm relationship that could get quite a lot worse
1: That is true, and for a man with the most fragile and enormous ego on earth who is still seemingly perplexed that people don't like him and is in total denial about it, a giant balloon model of him wearing a nappy floating on high above him may not go down too well. I have to
0: say, I thoroughly enjoyed Matt Bonner talking about how he decided to make the balloon. The picture of the balloon deflated is also quite brilliant. At first, says Matt, he wanted to make him cry, but then he decided that wasn't quite right because it made Trump look too sympathetic, which I agree with, too much empathy and tears. I also loved Wired magazine's forensic, quite earnest discussion of the balloon's skin shade. Bonner also chose to colour Trump's face in Pantone 715C, they write, a shade of orange slightly redder than the Pantone 1375C used for the rest of the blimp's body. A quick chromatic analysis of some Donald Trump pictures pins his face colour closer to the salmon-like Pantone 486C or a blend of 486C and the ham-like 163C. There are no recent pictures of Trump's unclothed body to verify the colour accuracy. (laughs) Once Matt has designed the balloon in 3D, it was sent to Imagine Inflatables, who actually refused to comment on the story.
1: I know this isn't the most interesting point of debate on the subject, but I was looking at the balloon this morning, and and I'm annoyed at how... Sweet it looks. I almost wanted to give it a cuddle. Oh,
0: Dolly. (laughs) CNN called it the biggest trolling of a lifetime. And I think they nailed it, actually, when they called it a delicious distraction from the collective angst in the UK right now over Brexit, the NHS crisis, Tory instability, and so on and so forth. A curveball, however, is that £48,000 has actually been raised for Sadiq Khan balloon gives an interesting and depressing insight into the political layer of the land, because that's 18,000 pounds more than what was raised for the Trump loon, and with almost 1,000 more contributors. Once the target of £50,000 has been raised, 27-year-old illustrator Yanni Brewer said he will design the balloon, which should be manufactured, ready to fly in August. Sadiq Khan has said that provided a balloon is safe, so flown at the legal height of, I think it's 30 metres, then he's fine with a balloon of himself. But I have to say, I think that's really worth taking note that a thousand more contributors have contributed towards a crowdfunder for a Sadiq khan balloon rather than a donald trump one it just reminds us again like Mm. you know it's not i I, you hear a lot i was listening to radio this week about being like you know we let politics get too polarized and that's why trump's in and we've learned our lesson no a lot of people still really really like trump's policies there are tons of people who aren't sitting there thinking we made a massive mistake let's not be like fucking blinded Mm. about that you know let's register the fact that £48,000 worth of Sadiq Khan
1: balloon is going to be going off in the air in August. I read that apparently Sadiq Khan's reaction to the balloon being made of him is basically, cool, enjoy. <laughs> Which I just think is how a leader is supposed to react to this stuff. They're supposed to have other shit to be worrying about. Interestingly, I remember listening to an interview with John Lloyd, who produced Spitting Image, and he said that the complaints that they used to get from politicians were never when they were damning their character or mocking their policies or governing style, but it was always about how ugly the puppets were or how silly the voices were.
0: How interesting. Mm. Sadly, Trump is unlikely to see his helium doppelganger as he's avoiding London as much as possible and will be at Chequers, Theresa May's countryside residence, 40 miles away when the balloon is due to fly over London's Parliament Square Gardens. Her petition is going to get the balloon flown over the Scottish golf course where Trump is later playing golf But who knows if that will get signed off? I think it must, it has to go above the golf course. It has to. To be honest though, it's not really important if Trump doesn't see the balloon. It's galvanizing in its existence. It'll be all over the global press coverage of his visit. He'll see it in print, even if he manages to avoid it, IRL. It feels especially important that it flies this weekend, given that another free Tommy Robinson rally has been mooted. Thousands of protesters have been marching against the far-right leader of the EDL being imprisoned since he was sent to jail in May, and over half a million people have signed a petition to free him from his
1: 13-month sentence. It's a salient reminder to remember what is outside of our very comfortable (laughs) bubble of reflected thoughts and opinions. In preparation for Trump's visit tomorrow, I thought we could guess what nicknames he might give our British politicians because famously, Trump gives nicknames to all the world leaders he meets. So he calls Hillary Crooked Hillary, Crazy Bernie, Elizabeth Warren he calls Pocahontas, Little yes. Little Marco for Florida Senator Marco Rubio, Lion Ted for Texas Senator Ted Cruz, so I was what do you think it I think it, it could be blustery boris? Blustery Boris, um I don't know, touchy Teresa
0: <laughs> Do you know him?
1: what if that hand holding was anything to go by, I think it could be Touchy Teresa. Granola Jeremy, perhaps? Nicey Nigel. Oh, he'll think Nigel's very nicey, yeah. Will be Nicey Nigel. as we've established on this podcast numerous times i am the only woman in britain currently not watching love island however a headline i read this week pertaining to one of its contestants caught my eye alex who apparently is known for his failed attempts at flossing has also made a name for himself on the show for persistently claiming that he prefers the natural look on a woman. Pandora, as an avid Love Islander and therefore the Love Island correspondent for this podcast, can you give me a bit more background on this?
0: I'm quite riveted by this, as it's complete rubbish. Alex goes for every single woman that comes into the villa. Sometimes they might be what has become culturally referred to as having a natural look. By that I mean without any surgery or hair extensions. But sometimes they've had both. I don't think Alex goes for the natural look particularly. I think he was just waffling away, desperately trying to find a paramour, (laughs) saying whatever he thought one girl particularly
1: wanted to hear. I thought it would be an interesting thing to talk about as I think this sort of misjudged faux feminism from self-labeled beta males is something we're seeing more and more of and while it's well-intentioned more often than not i think it does absolutely nothing to progress how we value treat and talk about women another example of this that caused a lot of controversy is the man who did an instagram post i think it was last year in praise of his wife's curvier body writing in this very self aggrandizing way about how even though her figure wouldn't get her on the front with the magazine he'd somehow found a way to love her not only in spite of but perhaps even partially because of it saying he'd always preferred women on the thicker side didn't you write a piece on that it pissed you off so much i wrote a column about
0: male feminists yeah
1: yeah
0: (laughs) it's such an interesting topic this i think people think it's really enriching and empowering and leveling when we speak about natural beauty like it's somehow reassuring to people that Mm. you know they don't need to get dolled up and they don't need to make an effort and I think there is an argument for that I think some people would find it reassuring but it also engenders further insecurity if you don't think that you fall into that category like Mm. oh my god I'm not a natural beauty because I have highlights and sometimes I use fake tan god how embarrassing what a betrayal of you know natural born womanhood I actually Mm. am Mm. it's something that's meant to empower women I like you just the way you are quote unquote but unfortunately it often has an
1: adverse effect as you say yeah, I think this kind of it's it's sexism dressed up in in woke fancy dress, and it's it's not going without satire. There was the absolutely brilliant spoof Twitter account, performative woke man, which was the sort of male feminist guy you often see on social media who tries to gain approval from women by studying and saying all the supposedly right things while so clearly not really believing any of it. So his true opinions kind of seep out um, of the cracks in other ways. And performative woke man tweeted a lot about how he preferred women without makeup or that he liked natural beauty. And sadly, he no longer exists. I don't know what happened to him. (laughs) He was one of those ephemeral Twitter golden moments that have a shelf life of about a month. It's like condo Nast elevator. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Another brilliant satire in this trend was the song Girl, You Don't Need Makeup. Have you seen that? No. God, it was a brilliant sketch that was on Inside Amy Schumer, which is... A music video that's a spoof of those kind of lovable, approachable boy bands who write these really commercial songs appealing to the insecurities of teenage (laughs) girls. And they sing this One Direction style songs uh, telling Amy that she doesn't need makeup. You're perfect when you wake up. Um, Then she takes it off. They're like, take it off. And she takes it off and then they're horrified by what they see and they tell her to put all the makeup back on (laughs) and I think the reason this satire is particularly good and so brutal is that often when men go on these long public rants about how they prefer the natural look on women they're referring to another sort of myth that's been constructed by magazines and advertising which is a conventionally attractive, very slim more often than not Caucasian woman who gets out of bed with perfect skin and a tiny bit less mascara on for an FHM photo shoot. It's not open-minded and it's not radical at all it's still subscribing to quite an oppressive stereotype and I would add that I think that's the minority
0: of men most men I know don't really give a shit they don't really notice if a girl, yeah. if their girlfriend wears loads of like if you ask my husband does Pandora wear mascara every day I don't I never wear mascara he wouldn't have a clue as, yeah. as he rightfully
1: shouldn't yeah, yeah I men don't have like a specific preference for like exactly what a woman should be wearing
0: to throw in a curveball here and slightly fight from the opposing corner as it were I'm actually quite concerned at the moment, vis-a-vis Love Island, about how much non-natural beauty is being championed. And by that, I mean, if you watch reality TV, it seems almost mandatory now that you have fillers and Botox and a lip job Mm. and hair extensions and eyelash extensions and so on and so forth. It's very much the norm for reality TV stars, almost a requirement it can feel at times. This year's Love Island contestant, who, Dolly, if you were watching, you would absolutely want to chat with me about because she's been generating so much heat, quite literally, is Megan Barton Hanson. Mm. So much so that her father has apparently taken time off work as he can't deal with the level of scrutiny and oh, coverage of her in the media. Oh, man. Megan is, without question, the most fancy contestant of all time on Love Island, but also, I would warrant, any single reality show I've ever seen, Every single boy has listed her at some point or another as the woman they would like to crack on with the women as well are completely in the thrall of her looks. Megan hasn't been particularly nice or shown extra levels of kindness or loyalty to anyone in the villa, and yet everyone is in her thrall you'd be surprised to note that this doesn't actually happen much on Love Island. The whole point of all that collective homogenous hotness, i.e. that they're all ripped and tanned and toned, something we have critiqued on previous episodes of the high low for its lack of body diversity. The whole point of that is that it's a level playing field so that other qualities have to be taken into account. The looks are meant to almost be eradicated in their consistency so that other qualities can come to the fore. And Megan this year has blown all that out of the water. And, and what you have is sort of an entire cast of contestants who cannot get over her physical
1: casing that's interesting i wonder what it is about her that, that that's happened in previous years this hasn't happened on love island that kind of like level
0: playing field has sort of worked as a as a premise but this hasn't happened with megan megan is 21 and has reportedly had 25000 pounds worth of surgery she has reportedly allegedly let's get all those words in had a nose job a lip job, fillers, Botox, ears pinned back, boob job, bum job, hair extensions, apparently, allegedly. Now, this isn't a judgment about the surgery megan has had i think provided you own it you can have any surgery you like it's your body etc etc but i do find it really troubling that the person everyone fancies in there is a very young woman who has augmented and amplified her body to something that you cannot be born with megan has constructed her hotness and whilst that is completely her own agenda and her right i am saddened that the person all the men in the villa want to be with and at home fancy and all the women at home want to look like is a young woman who didn't look like that at all before she had all that surgery. And what does that say about the type of womanhood that we are finding culturally attractive and culturally platforming and culturally aspiring to be? It's all very well saying we shouldn't champion natural beauty as the way women have to be and I agree with you there's a real danger in that but equally I'm not very happy about championing the other extreme that I see on Love Island right
1: now. Sadly though I do think she is just a reflection of culture and popular culture dictates this is attractive right now. But that's the chicken or the egg thing isn't it? Did Mm. we start finding that attractive because we saw it or do we see it because we now find it attractive? I I think it goes much deeper I think it's perpetuated by the fact that that commissioners are, are keep making shows with these people as the star, but I think it comes from a much deeper and darker place. I, th- I think it comes from porn culture, and obviously that's not my own theory. That's quite a popular feminine, feminist theory. But it's bizarre to think that this is the look du jour. That in the '60s we will we will look back at the '60s and see Bieber boots and and false eyelashes, and for this period we will look back and see fillers and and something something surgically augmented, as you said. I think it's very interesting
0: that we are... We're so polarised in culture, full stop, aren't we? Politically, we're so polarised. The right is so right. Liberal politics are so liberal. And you see the same in beauty standards. On one hand, you have Megan Barton Hanson, um, a 21-year-old former stripper and model, you know, who... Instagram is very, very sexualised, and you have everyone falling in love with her and and then the other hand, you have the kind of glossier,
1: I just woke up like this, just a lick of lip gloss, which is also a very pervasive beauty trend. But I I would say that that's a very niche beauty trend. I wouldn't say that's universal. It's the mainstream. Yeah, Yeah. you're right. The mainstream is pretty little thing, boohoo.com,
0: two-piece, tote bodycon, underside... Boobies
1: on display, hairless. It's it's cartoonish and it is. It's it's, cartoonish, and that's why. But that's pornography. Pornography is about the distorted male and female. It's so hard talking about it, isn't? Because
0: I'm terrified talking about this woman because I'm so desperate not to judge her or not to kind of like damn this woman for what she represents but I'd be lying if I said I didn't find it really
1: upsetting hearing how people fancy her so much and what she's done to get to that place I think your anxieties are, are quite rightly rooted in the fact not that, that a woman has done this to herself this has been happening for years yeah. and years like women have been having plastic surgery no it's the response to her that... well, I, I think it's more that, that this is this increasingly seems to be the one default aesthetic for young men and women and and that that is worrying it's not about what's the right way to be sexual or attractive or or, or your, what's the right style I don't think there is a right or a wrong but it's about it's a fact that there's just so little variety anymore it feels there's a brilliant piece uh, which was recommended
0: to us by a high-low listener on Vice about Meghan called In Defence of Meghan Barton Hanson because she's been criticised a lot for discarding various people and taking up with new people and just Generally, at times being a bit of the dickhead in the villa. Megan is hot, writes Emma Garland. Not just regular hot like the average professional footballer or someone off Riverdale, but a rare disorientating kind of hot that interferes with your brain chemistry and temporarily warps your personality. A hot that causes aloof men to fall over themselves trying to maintain their composure and self-assured women to boil over with rage. Emma goes on to write... Somewhere within that is the awareness that the sort of men who end up on Love Island probably tend to see her as a blank receptacle for their own projections. As far as a show built upon the premise that it is totally possible to fall in love with someone after two weeks of tanning goes, Megan is incredibly self-aware. She seems to be quite cognizant of the fact that her value, where relationships are concerned, is couched in her appearance. She says several times... um, There's actually... There was a really meaningful bit that will stick with me when one of the contestants, Samira, cries, being like, why does no one fancy me? And Megan goes, yeah, but you're, like, real. You're a strong woman. You know, people just see, like, tits and teeth with me. So she's very aware of of, of, of the vessel that she has built... Does it bum me out that everyone fancies a woman who thinks that her sole appeal is what she looks like and in fact proves that her augmented looks can command an entire house-nay-nation? It depresses me, yes. I just don't know what it's doing to girls at home and to boys who are starting to fancy girls and having a sexual awareness
1: of what Mm. they find attractive. Taking it back to the male contestants demanding natural beauty for a moment. I think it's such a place of blind privilege to speak from. Women's looks are taken into account and commented on every day of their lives, not just if they're a contestant on Love Island, whoever they are, whatever their age, Women who are lawyers, women who work at Tills, women who have large families, women of any age, they're all expected to groom themselves as if it were their profession. It's definitely something I would love to break out of and something I try to care about less and less, but to an extent, along with a lot of women I know, I do feel sort of enslaved by it. So for a bloke to then say women shouldn't care about it or they should just spend less time on their makeup, I just find so, so thoughtless. I think it goes so much deeper than vanity. I think you're absolutely right. Of course it goes much deeper than um, than vanity. Beyond what natural beauty is or isn't, I don't like the way men who say this stuff use their allowing of women to wear less makeup or be curvier as a way to ingratiate themselves or prove how right on they are. It's a rhetoric I find really gross and annoying and you hear it all the time, not just on reality TV, that in real life conversations and when I was dating I used to hear men say it a lot as well and to my mind demanding women be natural is still as oppressive as demanding women be conventionally doled up.
0: I think that Alex or whoever should be able to state their preference in women without it having kind of damning cultural implications but I think that that preference is perhaps quite confused and misguided. Yes. It's not like I fancy blondes or, yes, or brunettes. Exactly. And I completely agree with you that the policing of women's looks is dangerous. But I think we have to look beyond the policing in order to see the representation, though, because actually, for me, I find Megan and what she represents actually much more dangerous
1: than Dr Alex lucky in Love waffling on about what he thinks he wants next in a woman. I think I should march into Love Island <laughs> in uh, these leggings with holes in uh, with... A red face and no makeup on, and my upper lip unwaxed, and the mistrunchful hair bun that I'm currently, that I'm currently sporting. And uh, see what Alex makes of natural beauty. Then he'll crack on with you, mate, just like the poor man's tried with every single other woman
0: who's entered the villa.
1: It's time for Ask the High Low. Panda, will you kick us off with a listener email? Hi Dolly and Pandora. I am a 23-year-old orphan. My dad died
0: when I was 13 of liver cancer and my mum followed a year later of thyroid cancer. After that, my uncle and auntie took care of me until I was 18 and moved away for university. Since starting university, I have met the best people in the world, which have now become my family. I am currently about to start a PhD at Cambridge and have been with my boyfriend for four years. I am a happy girl, but at the same time, I am not. The issue is, I haven't told anybody, except my boyfriend, which took me almost three years, about my parents. I'm originally from a different country, hence it has been easy to keep all of this secret as I moved to the UK when I was 18. I feel like I should tell my friends as they're so important to me and this situation is really upsetting me, but I'm terrified they'll be incredibly hurt, I know I would be, and will be so angry that they won't want anything to do with me. I feel that because it happened years ago, I'm not allowed to mourn or be upset as I've created this whole new life, but I feel like I am not truly myself. I would appreciate any advice that you have to give or if you know anybody that could help me in this situation.
1: I was so, so sad when I read this email and obviously because of of what you've been through, I'm so, so sorry that you have had to go through that. I can't imagine how difficult And traumatizing that must have been but I also my heart broke because she's obviously such a compassionate person I mean it it really takes someone with um, a deep amount of sensitivity when you've been through so much pain to consider the pain of other people for you not allow for you not letting them into your pain and I think that shows that that you're a very kind and sensitive person but but equally I, I would remember that you know if, if you if you phrase it and frame it in the way that you framed this email which is you tell them your story and you say I'm sorry if you feel that I've kept you on the outside with this um I hope you can understand why it's been so difficult for me to talk about um and I'm so glad now that you know and that we can move forward in our friendship with you knowing all of this about me I have to say if someone has a problem with that then <laughs> I think that's quite a cruel person and I, I really think that you sound like a wonderful friend and I'm sure that your friends know and love that about you and they will just be so grateful that you've opened up to them.
0: I was really riveted by your email. At first I thought I must have missed something because I read it and I thought, why would they be angry with you? And then I realised you thought they'd be angry with you because you kept it Mm. from them. And that just not for a second no not for a second i know people do feel left out when they haven't been privy to information but this isn't something that you've been telling some people and keeping from others as some kind of sort of weapon or How, okay. manipulation exactly. tool like this is something that you're obviously deeply scarred by you said you don't feel like you can truly be yourself um so i i think they'll be devastated for you and i think maybe once it's public it, It might galvanise you to um, talk to someone about it or to attend a group or to read some books or to process it any way in which you feel like you can with the guidance of those that love you. Don't worry about telling them. Worry about yourself and how you can continue to build a life in which you feel safe and loved despite the absence of two very important people in your life, which must be devastating. I mean, both Dolly and I are lucky enough to have two yes. living
1: parents. That The thought of having neither is just beyond comprehension. And from such a young age. And also, as Pandora said, I think as cheesy as this sounds, and I know I can sometimes be a bit of an earnest poster girl for bloody therapy, but I think what the minute that you get oxygen to a wound that's when it can heal and you are more than within your right to mourn this um, or grieve for this or be sad about this for as long as you want, there is no right way to to move through something like this. But I would imagine that if you have um, held it back from people close to you, then that would have been another layer of anxiety and stress. And I would hope for you, as Pandora said, that not only will this bring you closer to your friends, but I think it will will help you with the grieving process and and with with finding not closure because I'm not sure if you ever find closure with something as traumatic as this but um, a way to move on to another stage of your life best of luck with it let us know how you get on do keep in touch and as always if anyone has experience of this or or they've been in the same boat and they'd like to be put in touch with the listener we've done this before with a, um, a listener who just lost her mother and the reaction was huge and she connected to a lot of you and she said that it's really helped her so um, do get in touch if you'd if you'd like to send a message to this woman.
0: Thank you very much to everyone who listened to The Hilo. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. It helps other people find us and boosts us in the iTunes charts. You can email us thehilo show at gmail.com or tweet us at the Hilo show. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.